I'm here with Mike Molina. He's back on Gilman's campus. Mike, I'm, I'm very pumped to have you in here on the Path to Fall podcast, episode 35. Thank you for having me. It feels good to be back on campus. It's been a while. I know, right? I It's been so long since we really sat down and had a conversation. It feels like there's a, a chasm in between this year and last year with, with COVID and not seeing each other and your departure from Gilman and, and you have a you know whole new situation going on that I think people are curious to know more about. Yeah, man. So, you know, one of the casualties of COVID was I didn't really get a chance to say goodbye fully and, and let people know what was next for me. But, um, you know, the transition from Gilman to where I am now was really a culmination of everything I gained from Gilman. And it was a tremendous amount. I can talk for days about how influential this time period at Gilman was for my life. And one of the main things was that I came clear about education as my journey, as my vocation. And so, you know, a law degree, so there were always, that was always an option, right? There was always this thing in the background, like I should do something with that. Mm -hmm. But when I came here and experiences I had here were enough for me to say, I can let that go. This is what I want to do. And so that's when I started really kind of thinking about it. So what is this career going to look like? What is this, you know, educational career going to look like? And I started pursuing stuff and thinking about leadership and, and what, you know, what was out there. And, and I got some, some, some interest, um, but I was looking for something specific and I wanted something that not only was just a role of leadership, but was that role of leadership at a school that represented all the things that I aspire to be as a person, but all the things I want to see in the world. And so it's a tuition free, kindergarten through fifth grade uh, Episcopal school. So what tuition free means is we, we're an independent school just like Gilman, um, but we don't charge tuition. So we fundraise to provide this free education for boys. They're 100% African American in a community called Anacostia, Southeast DC, which is a historically black neighborhood that has seen better days. Um, there's still some pockets of black middle class and it's you know near some areas of, of you know, black wealth, but right where the school is, there's still a, an impoverished community. And then there's gentrification creeping in because it's a DC and that mm -hmm. market is insane. So we, we serve the folks from that community and, and boys specifically. And, um, you know, so I'm the head of school and I was brought in to, uh, replace, uh, the person who, who helped to found the school, the executive director and president who helped to found the school thing was, is James Woody. Um, and uh, so not only coming to the school, um, but coming to the school right at the start of COVID and then coming to try to replace the person who helped found the school. Mm -hmm. So an adventure, uh, an adventure, quite an adventure this year. But, <clears throat> excuse me, what I would say, um, you know, to folks listening, and I'm assuming the audience will be students, parents, you know, the whole Gilman village, Gilman community. Um, yep. You know, what I would say is that Gilman is a special place because it, it plants seeds in people that, you know, may bloom quickly or not, you know. Um, but it was definitely, Gilman was a, was a huge part of concretely me, you know, being appealing to the, to the folks who mm -hmm. started the school because a lot of them come from St. Albans in that whole world. And so, you know, Henry was at St. Albans and, St. Albans and Gilman have lots of connections. Mr. Schmick is like best friends with, you know, my development director. They grew up together, right? So there's all these connections that I'm sure were helpful. But I also think that, you know, what, what Gilman did um, 
for me specifically in the arc of my life, it was a complete departure from a lot of what I had done, right? Right. And um, working in an elite kind of independent school environment with the kind of history that Gilman has around race and class wouldn't have been something I would have chosen 10 years ago. Hmm. I'd have been like, that's not for me. That's not the world for me. But then coming here and quickly building relationships with colleagues and with students and with parents and with administration and, you know, really enjoying the culture of Gilman, mm-hmm. um, you know, shifted something for me. And I think it made me able to be a bridge builder, more of a bridge builder in the way that I have to be now um, at my school. For sure. And I, I remember my conversations with you from, from sharing that office my first year coming to Gilman out of college. And I felt maybe similar to how you're describing your experience in education is all my friends from college went to go into banking and Wall Street. And that just wasn't for me. But I was always that first year thinking a little bit like, am I doing the right thing here? Is education where my heart is at? And, and my conversation with you a lot of the times you you helped me because one thing I remember you would had just given an assembly where you're doing spoken word poetry and you're you know you're standing up there and everyone is loving what you're what you're telling them in in, in the crowd and you were like where else can I do something like this go teach my English class go out on the middle school football field do my spoken word at assembly like it really does have a lot of different hats that you can wear as a as a teacher coach at Gilman. Yeah, man. I think one of the things, and it's 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 Gilman, and it's it's teaching, it's education in general. But there's something special about Gilman. It's the that you have to coach, right? Mm-hmm. It's that it's assembly, right? These are the things that I loved from the start. Immediately, there were things that were like difficult, but the things that I took to immediately were coaching and assemblies. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily me performing, but just going to assembly and everybody being together and like trying to learn something together or senior speeches or just seeing the, that's where the culture of Gilman Upper School really, really blossoms. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, where can you get to have this this kind of diverse, layered experience as a professional, except at a school, right? And, you know, the other thing I'll say is the uh, colleagues, right? So the people that I got a chance to connect with made a big impression on me too. And like I used to say, you know, teachers on my tribe and now, now I feel like English teachers are my tribe so people like Justin Baker you know Patrick Hastings um, Kelsey Carper mm-hmm. and Beth Knapp you know mm-hmm. like these are people I would have long conversations with about you know books or philosophy or history or life on earth or you know and it's like where do you have colleagues who have so much kind of world experience and have read so much and are thoughtful about the world and you can sit down and talk about anything mm-hmm. you can learn things you know it, it's it's special it's a special thing it's not it's not necessarily for everyone and if you if money's your thing go get money that's what i used to tell the students as well it's like if you want to go get money get money there's lots of paths in life yep. but if you're moved you know there's a um you know teddy conover is one of one of my guys one yeah. of my, one of my favorite guys Lots of favorites, but <clears throat> he gave a great senior speech this year about teachers, actually, and he wants to become a teacher. And it was just so so awesome to hear him talk about all of the teachers that impacted him at Gilman. Yep, yep. And he, you know, he he um, sent it to me, and I was I was moved. I was very moved. And um, I taught his brother um, my first year, and taught him my last year. 
And and it was, uh, you know, one of the things I said to him was, there are many paths to teaching, right? You don't you don't necessarily have to go into education right now in order to become a teacher. Um, you can go gather experience. You know, I did that, and then decide and bring all of that experience to teaching. Um, but there's something uniquely special about education that makes you know space in the heart, space in the mind, space in the spirit. You know, for you know, great things, you know, great things. And I, you know, I want to talk about this stuff because this is also a product, not only of Gilman, a product of the years that I taught here, but also a product of my colleagues and my students. They all had a hand in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think being at Gilman, if you're any, if you're somewhat intellectually curious, you just have a field day at this school. Like, even before the podcast, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about tech, really about the technical intricacies of setting up a podcast, and we were having difficulties before you came in, and just watching Cesare go to work here, and his switcher wasn't working to begin. Now he's got, you know, he pulls out the backup. He's got two computers. We set it all up. Like I'm taking that in, and it's like it's interesting to me. So I think if you have, you know, any capacity for learning. Like, this place is amazing. You can go into Beth Knapp's office and have a conversation with her and learn about things that you never even thought about. Or you can go to the science department, you know, and sit down with Frank Fitzgibbon, and he's okay. he's got a whole new world for you. Yep. Um, so, like, being and he's a... he's well-read. I just have to say that. he's uh, He introduced me to so many books of poetry and other, you know, he's a scientist, but then... You know, that's that's just a special thing, definitely, about Gilman. Right. There's so many, all the teachers here have crossovers <clears throat> between, you know, their subject and then all the other things they're into on the side and their hobbies and their interests outside of school. And that plants seeds in the boys, too. You know, like I'm seeing now, um, I get to see now guys who are in college and uh, Nietzsche Pandy, who, uh, you know, we connected. I taught him, but he's now... Not only is he a writing, I think he's a writing and finance major or something like that at Hopkins, but he's working with another Gilman grad, um, Erica Hudson, who's a teacher in, in the lower school. Her son has a catering company, and um, Nietzsche is working with him. And so, so he's got a business interest, he's got his creative interest, and he's got his like professional interest, and he's hmm. juggling them all, and you know, managing to get straight A's at Hopkins, and you know, like that's that's he's a special guy all of these guys are special but that's also kind of seated in them when they come here and they encounter people like frank fitzgibbons and you right you're a visual artist and then you know you're an english guy and you're an athlete i mean it's that's the they see that and they're like wow i can be that like i can do these multiple things i don't have to be like some kind of wrote finance guy you can be that and you can be an artist and you can be an athlete you know right yeah that's that's really what i love the most out of gilman and you brought up nietzsche he i mean he does all these things and then he makes himself also available to the students at gilman now like he popped into a form meeting last weekend to talk about meditation and it's like you know you see him do all that he does with his schoolwork and his interests with the catering and in writing and finance. And he's also can speak on this subject too. And it, yeah. it really is a awesome model for high school guys who maybe don't know what they want to do yet. And that's perfectly fine, but yeah. they can see that there are so many options. 
Man, and you know, I'm thinking while you were saying that, I started to think about the specialization in sports. And um, I never knew a lot about that stuff because I didn't, you know, I, I, the level of athletics here was much higher than any place else I had been. And so I remember being in, you know, coaching middle school and, and in conversations with folks about um, Bryn Holmes, who, who, you know, says, look, man, play it all, mm -hmm. right? You, you know, one, is going to keep your body in shape all year. You're going to use different muscle groups and make yourself stronger and, and more stamina, everything. You're going to get more skills that you can cross, you know, pollinate from one sport to the other. You're not going to, you know, you'll reduce the burnout, you know, mm -hmm. um, by having diverse athletic experiences. And, you know, I think that pr promoting that, you know, for boys, right? Like, cause let's be honest, like, I know when I was in high school, I definitely had interest in stuff. And, you know, I read books and was interested in politics and like I had interest in stuff, mm -hmm. but football was my life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it was like, that's what I did. Like I was right. a football player. Yep. And so I think for guys, if you can, in that realm, in that athletic realm, where we're really trying to stretch our bodies and figure out what we can do and, and put ourselves up against other guys and like in a, in a controlled environment, right? Not, not out the streets fighting or, mm -hmm. you know, attacking each other socially, but like in the, in the realm of these rules and the realm of this space, we can battle mm -hmm. and it's a contained amount of time. And then afterwards we move on, right? Like that stuff is really, really deeply important for boys. Mm -hmm. And if you see then the you know cross referencing like playing different sports, and then align that with all of these models of, of men who are like Renaissance men, there's a there's a great deal that that a boy can learn from that, and, and whether they cash in on it as a youngster or later on in life, at some point they're gonna be like, you know what? If I want to paint, I can paint. Yep. yep. You know, if I want to learn salsa dancing, I can do that. You know, like I think that's a that's a good thing. It's real yeah. for the um, world. Yeah, I mean you. You have the opportunity to learn and develop new skills. It doesn't matter. Like I, I do some admissions tours. I know you were doing admission tours when, yeah. when you were here too. And like I tell the guys when we walk by the art room because that was my favorite part when I came to Gilman. Like the fields are amazing, obviously, and like love lacrosse, and that's one thing. And I love the English department and everyone I met there. But when I walk past the art room, it's like kids are creating this art in, at like at the high school level yeah i always tell the the guys on the admissions tour like you don't have to be a, a great artist to begin with because our teachers and and Car carl Connolly will will develop you and you will get that much better it's just that interest that spark that you need to enter the art program and then effort and you're gonna you're gonna get there really you're gonna get there man and the you know, the wood carving, the production, Gilman TV. I mean, there are all these high-level things going on here where a, a, a youngster can identify a, a curiosity and then grow it into a talent or skill. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it's, it's special, man. It's really special. Yeah, and I think you, you could take that and apply it to anything. Once you realize after your experience in the art program that, oh, it only took me four years and now I'm an amazing artist and I wasn't at the beginning, like for the rest of my life, I'll pick up anything, yeah. work hard at it for a couple of years and I'm going to get better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a, that's a good segue, man. If I can, if I can take, take it, us to take this advantage. Book. Yeah. So, you know, um, this, this book, I wrote this book. Should I put it in the camera to show? That'd be awesome. So this is called, 
This is, um, you know, called an adventure in, um, I don't know what kind of adventure it was, but it, it crystallized so many different parts of my life and so many parts of, you know, what I've explored in my life. But then in a very real way is a crystallization of the time I spent at Gilman, like a very concrete way. So when I came here and like you, um, you know, I came to teach English, came to teach junior American literature. And, you know, I, there was a lot of autonomy for us to choose the books we want to teach. But when I came, I was, I was handed kind of the way it's always been done, which is there are three books that we teach. Everything else is up to you. The three books are Huck Finn, Great Gatsby, and uh, Death of a Salesman, right? I'm good with all those books. A little bit wary of Huck Finn because I had never taught it before, read it a couple of times, got the you know, the value of it. I understand Twain's value as a, as a historical figure and the book's value in an American literature um, you know, context in a class. But the N-word is in it 217 times. Mm -hmm. And... I, I had experiences in classes where it was taught to me and the teachers were not prepared to teach it well. And I, you know, shut down or other students shut down because of hearing my teacher use that word or you hearing my peers use that word, right? So I was, you know, it was like Huck Finn, okay, wow. Jumping in the deep end here my first year, I have to figure out how to teach Huck Finn. And it's after the Freddie Gray, all the stuff that happened with Freddie Gray in 2015 that happened to him and then what happened in the city as a result of, you know, him being dying in police custody in such a violent way. And it not it 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 wasn't like the George Floyd incident where the whole thing's on camera and everybody's pretty clear that this is horrific. There are lots of people who felt like one way or another about it, right? So there was room for dissension and and, and um, you know, a lot of division. So I come in as a first year guy, I have to teach Huck Finn, you know, everything's happened with Freddie Gray um, and Donald Trump is running for office. So race stuff is really up around immigration. And he had just spent years accusing Barack Obama of not being a citizen. And so race was just the, the dust was kicked up in the air. Right? Mm -hmm. And so the adventure of teaching it, like wanting to teach it well meant that I had to do start doing research. I had to start reading like how about the book as much as the book itself and then about Twain and about, you know, criticism of Twain and criticism of the book. And I don't I mean literary criticism, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't mean people just saying, Oh, I hate Twain, Twain sucks. I mean like actual literary criticism. So I I brought a couple of things to show because I think this is what is um cool about being an English teacher and being in a place like Gilman where there's that that library-ish room, um, the English conference room where there's books all over the place. And sometimes I would just go in there and like, I'll take that. Oh, yeah. You know, and nope. so there's all this good stuff in there. And then so I would come across writings about Twain and about the book. And I began to really get fascinated with the construction of the book, what was intended with of the book, where where the intention failed. You know, and it became this kind of journey of like investigation into the writing process and like what does it mean when you're so clearly as Twain was trying to, you know, criticize certain aspects of America's culture. Like what I tell students is he's he's savaging race, he's savaging class, and he's savaging, you know, perverted religion, right? The religion used to 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 control the masses, right? 
and he's attacking these things and, and these these triangulations using irony and satire and layering and if you start unpacking that you get this beautiful example of how powerful writing can be mm-hmm. so you want to investigate that but then he's using stereotypes right in the formulation of Jim Jim is ignorant Jim is ridiculous Jim is gullible Jim is stupid Jim Jim is inarticulate all on the surface and if you can dig through the stereotype and you dig through the, the way he butchers black dialect and you dig through that, you realize he's presenting Jim as the only father figure for Huck. He's the only wise person in the whole book. He's the only person you really should be rooting for other than Huck, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean when that's your intention, but the way that you do it causes harm? The way that you do it reinforces stereotypes. So it's very complicated, complex, layered investigation. <clears throat> and I did not do it well. I don't think I did it justice that first year at all. Yeah. Um, but next year, I'm, what I did know is that there was a lot of value in wrestling with these issues at that moment. From your first year, you knew how complex and satirical and how many layers of the book there were before going into it, or was that over your four years of teaching it? Over that was a con- continuous process for you. Continuous process. I, you know, I, I read it in the summer, and I was like, whoa, you know, I, I did picked up on so many things I hadn't picked up on as a student, and so I was like, oh, I got this angle, that angle, and then I read some of the criticism. Um, one of them is Toni Morrison's. That's the one that, that really opened the door for me to really respect and appreciate what the book was, despite the negative aspects of it. And they are negative. It's not, there's no way around that. There are really um, direct things you can criticize in the, you know, you can, you can call as negative, call out as negative that Twain did. But Toni Morrison has this, this amazing troubling book, this, this relatively short essay where she reframes the entire book for me. And she essentially says, this is the story of the perverse nature of racism and how it flowers into this horrifyingly abusive relationship between father and son, Pap and Huck, Mm -hmm. and this stifling inability for Huck and Jim to really flower as friends. Like these blocks are in the way. Like they have all the reason to be friends. They're surviving death together. They're, you know, going through schemes together. They're both on the run for their lives. They have every reason and they they are friends, but there's these blocks that they just can't get past. Mm And so she frames it as like, this is race in America. We have, you know, black and white race dynamics. Every reason to be best of friends, to feel like family. Been here the same amount of time. Because like, we're all human beings. Yeah. Like, we're all human beings. But even if you zero down in America, it's like black folks and white folks have been walking this path together for a long time. Mm-hmm. And there's, you, could, you could see us as siblings of the same kind of root. Uh, but there's this block and the block is not having processed and dealt with the original sin of that relationship, which is slavery. Mm-hmm. And and she lays that out without it being, you know, um, what could get in the way is if it's a, it's it's politicized, right? She doesn't politicize it. She makes it very a human core thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's love between Huck and Jim that can't happen fully because of race in the in, in the society. So, you know, that opened up the door. So I, I, I didn't go in, I don't think I, like, 
I probably oversold it. I don't think I failed completely my first year, but it was certainly over the course of four years, reading more, learning more, learning from the students as That's, I'm teaching it. Yeah. They're, them pointing out stuff I didn't see and admitting that and being like, yo, you're right. <laughs> like, I didn't even catch that, right? And then learning more about Twain. I think the last year is where it started to crystallize in four, the fourth year teaching is where I started to be like, I got this now. I think I can, I think I could actually teach other teachers how to do this well. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was how long it also took to write Jim Huckleberry. And my intention there was I, over the course of the four years, I had so many different ways to understand Twain and understand the book and be honestly critical of it, but also try to get the students to see the beauty and power of it, how critical I think it is to understanding not only American literature, but American history. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I, I have all that, but there's this one lingering thing that I can't forgive Twain for, and I don't think anyone should forgive Twain for, and that's the mischaracterization of Jim and you creating a, 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 a minstrel stereotype of Jim, uh, which wasn't necessary to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And when you read more about Twain, you realize he loved minstrelsy. He thought it was funny. Yeah. And it was popular. And he's at this point with Jim, with Huck Finn, he owns his own publishing company. So he's a businessman. Mm-hmm. Minstrelsy sells. He grew up with it, thinks it's funny. And so when he creates Jim, he's not creating a real person. He's creating a minstrel in order to be funny, to, to hide the to satire, sell to sell to to sell maybe? books. It, yeah, absolutely to sell books. Yeah, it's very clear. There's articles about that that he was trying to sell books, and this was a popular medium medium of entertainment was make fun of the shucking and jiving black guy, mm-hmm. and so he uses all of that. Um, it doesn't take away from his you know very real intention to try to make us appreciate Jim as a character and, and appreciate in Jim the struggle of black folks for freedom. I think he wanted to show that. But he could have achieved that goal without exaggerating. Oh yeah, man. So I mean he, one of his main his main gifts is realism. You know, Huck is a real person. Like I mean I one of the funniest things when you teach this book is that the kids start referring to Huck as oh he's a real person. Like they forget he's a character. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind them like, no, actually that's Twain. Right, like it's Twain communicating with us through Huck, and, and it's funny to have to remind him of that because his language is so realistic and the, his observations are so like dry and direct and weirdly um, innocent, but also it's just complicated and layered, and it, it's not innocent like childish. It's innocent like someone innocently looking out at the world and being like, "Why is this that way?" Mm-hmm. Like a fourteen-year-old boy would actually do. So he makes this beautiful, real character out of Huck, and then he, instead of doing that with Jim, he makes a minstrel out. He makes a fool out of him. Mm-hmm. Um, question about Twain: um, How much of this and, and what he did in in the book was a product of the time period he was a part of and he grew up with, and how much of it is it that he was, to some degree, racist or to a larger degree? How much of a racist was Mark Twain? Well, you, you can't measure a person's like level of racism like that. What you, what you can say is every person makes choices mm-hmm. and they're responsible for their choices. Those choices occur within the context. So, of course, him growing up in Missouri uh, on a, you know, with slavery, mm-hmm. knowing enslaved people, 
you know, he, there's a, uh, Benjamin Quarles is, is someone who was enslaved on where he grew up, who used to storytell all the time. And he actually honors Benjamin Quarles as someone who helped him learn how to be a storyteller, right? He is a product of his time for sure. Mm -hmm. But there are contemporaries of his who also are products of that time who are much more direct about attacking, you know, slavery, attacking racism. This guy named George Washington Cable from my hometown, New Orleans, who was his contemporary. And he and Twain actually toured the country together. Twain would read from Huck Finn. George Washington Cable would read from his stories. And George Washington Cable was much more directly like, racism is wrong. Mm -hmm. Black people are full human. I'm going to call it out. You know, his stories called it out. When they were speaking together, he called it out. And Twain was much more sly about it. He was much more trying to make a joke of it and all that. So that's a choice. And it's it's in alignment with who he is, right? Twain is a satirist. He's a humorist. He's like one of, maybe one of our first stand-up comedians, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's going to take that lane. But that's a choice. And so we can hold him accountable for it. And actually, I feel like it's the only responsible thing to do is to acknowledge that context's influence on him and then hold him responsible for his choices. So. Did, did his view on r race change over the course of his life? Did he have a similar... Um, transformation in, in his perception on race as Huck does in, in Huckleberry Finn, right? When he rips up the, the letter he's going to write, does, does Twain have something similar that happens in his life or is it pretty, like... It, That's a great question. I, I'm i not a Twain scholar and there are many out there, so I'm not going to try to step into that deep water, but I will say... Because I'm sure his, his perception on this issue changed or just like your perception on Huck Finn changed over those four yeah. years of teaching it, right? Yeah. His over writing this book right. and, and lecturing and going on tour with uh, Benjamin, I forget his last name, but... Uh, George Washington Cable. George yeah. Washington Cable, right? It, yeah. it, it probably He probably had shifts in his perspective. Yeah, I, so he's an organism, right? Like uh, every human evolves over the course of their lives. And I think that's, that's also one of the very important things about Huck Finn. That's one of the messages in, in that book mm -hmm. is for us today is like we it's not that Twain is either racist or not he is he does racist things he makes choices that have racist consequences meaning he's reinforcing stereotypes against black folks mm -hmm. that's mainly it he's dehumanizing black folks with the use of the n-word and the way that it is used mm -hmm. yeah, it is used in a very kind of savagely cut you know cut the humanity out of your body type way right it's right. used in the way that it was intended to be used, right? Which is another really interesting choice that he made. That's complicated. Yeah. That has negative consequences, but I don't like the changing it to slave thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't like taking it out either. Mm -hmm. I, I think Twain, because one of the things that we, we need to remember about Twain and his time is they weren't using the N-word like that publicly. He would never say it aloud. He would never at, say it at aloud his lectures. at his lectures. It was, it was not... Like, oh, everybody's just saying this. It was a choice to throw in the reader's face. Look how ugly this is. This is this ugly. This is you. I'm showing you the way that you think about black folks. And and so that's, I wouldn't take it out. I would never take it out. I think we have to face it. And it forces us of our generation to face it, right? Very important. But, you know, I, I think he was pretty steady. And his, it, I think he... I think he probably, when he was young, saw the humanity of Benjamin Quarles, who was the enslaved storyteller who, who he, he loved and admired. He probably saw humanity beyond what society was telling him about black folks. 
And I think that 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 kind of rhythm stayed with him as he lived. Now he didn't always act on it in 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 um in every circumstance. But he did act on it in, in some other circumstances. So he, you know, I probably shared the story with you that he paid for one of the first black uh, Yale law students. Yep. Uh, Warner T. McGuinn, who was a Baltimore guy, came to Baltimore and ended up being a mentor to Thurgood Marshall, right? And, and Twain pays for his tuition to Yale Law and says, every white person with a lot of money should pay for a black man or, you know, I don't know if he's a black man or black person to go to law school so that they can, so, so we can help them get on their feet and like fight for themselves, right? So very clearly, almost like a reparations argument, like it, this needs to be repaired. I'm going to do my part. And he pays for other students to go to school at HBCUs and other places. So he put his money where his mouth is, right? And so I, I don't know that it's, it's so much that there's a steady evolution. And it's the same with Huck. Mm -hmm. If you look at the book, this is what's so amazing about Twain, right? It's almost like he's confessing because Huck goes through these evolutions and you think he's figured it out when he tears up the letter and he says, all right, I'll go to hell. I don't care. I love Jim. Right? He didn't say those words, but he essentially says, I love Jim more than my own soul. Right, and that's I'm what willing, his action says. Right. I'm willing to burn in hell to save my friend. Right. Mm -hmm. But then at the end, <laughs> he says to Jim, in order to try to kind of crystallize the final moment of like, I see you as a full human, Jim. He says, Jim, I knew you was white inside. Mm -hmm. And just undercuts it all. Because now it's saying in order to be fully human, you have to be white inside. Mm -hmm. So I can't see your humanity as a black man. I can only see your humanity if I think that you're inside a white man. Twain, I don't think Twain is, Twain is not an idiot. Twain is, you know, I, I think you could call him a genius. So when he writes that line at the end of the book and undercuts all of it's a what decision he, it's a decision and what he's saying i think is it's not this steady evolution from racism away from racism it's a constant struggle and facing of it and saying so what would have happened you know in in a real life situation in this day and age of microaggressions and stuff is huck says that and you know hopefully a fully formed gem says hey huck let me explain to you why that's not the thing to say and what's mm -hmm. wrong with what you just said. Right. And then Huck says, oh, crap. Oh, yeah. I need to do better. Mm -hmm. And then they go on with their friendship. And then sometime maybe Huck says something else or Jim says something else. And they have to have a conversation about that. And that evolution isn't a steady thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a mountain, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, he, he evolved, but he took steps forward and steps back and left and right and and that's really the story of America and its contradictions, right? It's yeah. it's it's Huck Finn, it's Twain's life, it's it's really every human is just a, a huge mess of contradictions like that, trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong, where we misstep, where we are correct. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, he's a complex American icon, really. My question for you is: if you were doing the podcast and you were the podcast host and you had Twain on here and you've studied him for so long you know a lot about him and his works what what questions or uh points of confrontation would you maybe bring up to, to talk about with him wow that's an excellent question i hope you ask questions like this to your students <laughs> that is what you call a dope question so i don't mm, i'm gonna think a lot about that and i mean maybe i'll write a spoken word poem about that that'd be great um Shout out. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
Caroline Hervey, one of my students last year, instead of writing a paper, she asked me, instead of an, a, just a literary analysis paper, if she could write a creative paper um, imagining Twain's writing process. And so she wrote like a journal, a seri series of kind of journal entries of Twain as he's thinking through how he's writing Huck Fan. And he's like deciding what to do about the N-word and deciding to do what about this and what about that. It was fascinating. It was the first student had ever asked to do something like that and it was well done. But um, I'm stalling right now because I have no good That's answer. That's all right. For you. You can but I would say this. I would give him Jim Huckleberry. So this book is intended to have a conversation with Mark Twain. That's perfect. I don't know how else to do it. He's not alive and he's, you know, vastly more, uh, you know, accomplished as a writer than I don't think, I don't know if I'll ever be. Um, so this is, this would start a conversation. So this book is intended to rewrite Jim. So it's the entire story of Puck Finn, same story arc, but it follows Jim. So there are part points in Twain's book, Huck Finn, where Jim just disappears from the story because he's following Huck. Mm -hmm. And for days, maybe weeks, you have no idea what's going on with Jim. And it's like, wait a minute, he's running from enslavement. Mm -hmm. Something's going on with him. How is, what is he doing? Is he hiding? Is he meeting people? What's happening? And what is he thinking all this time, right? So I investigate that. And so there are moments where Huck dis disappears from this book and we follow Jim. And he, he speaks in this kind of poetic language. That's, that's my thing. And that's, that's to try and rescue him from that dialect that mm -hmm. Twain, you know, restrains him and, and, and captures him. That so to yeah. answer your question, I didn't have a whole lot. <laughs> well, yeah. I listened to um, the introduction and a little bit of chapter one on SoundCloud, which I, I loved how you, do you read the whole book on, is there an audio version? I think that'd Not be pretty yet. cool too. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, I have a full-time job. I know. Plus, I know you're a busy man. I try to think. I think about it. and I'm like, yeah. If I maybe if I scheduled it every Saturday to read, but it it's not just the reading, as you know. It's like the production part of it. It's like right. editing it and yep. takes yep. and 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 then in the in the beginning in the intro, you have the music in the background, yeah, yeah, which is cool. Yeah, and it, that took a while, right? Yeah, so right. It's I'm, not I'm easy. I'm looking at the hours, and I'm like, this would likely take me six months. And I have some really important stuff to do on a daily basis. Right. <laughs> you maybe, know, maybe it's a summer project. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, exactly in the summer. And um, yeah. what was your writing process like for Jim Huckleberry? And where did where did this idea originate? Maybe it was a whole process over your four years teaching teaching the book. But when when was the moment where you're like, I need to write this conversation with Mark Twain about Huck Finn. Well, I'm, can I read something for you real quick? That'd be great. Um, this is not my writing. I, I'll, if you want, I can, I can read a little bit of Jim Huck and um, spit, spit a little poem for you too. I brought one. I have one in mind. But um, there's, this is actually, this was not um, the book that I used in my first year, but I found this later and it captures a lot of what I'm trying to do with Jim Huckleberry. So in quote, an American dilemma, this is book read, it's called The Jim Dilemma, Reading Race in Huckleberry Finn by Joycelyn Chadwick Joshua. It's a black woman, literary critic, who like me, sees the value of this book and of Twain and wants to help teachers understand how to teach it well. So in quote, an American dilemma, Ralph Ellison asks whether quote, American Negroes are simply the creation of white men or have they at least helped to create themselves out of what they have found around them? Quote. 
Mark Twain compels the reader of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn to address not only this question, but the question of visibility and legacy. The novel challenges the white reader to learn about and experience a traumatic and debasing period in American history, true, as well as discovering the unique circumstances of American literary history. So history and, and American literary history, this book delivers messages to white readers. At the same time, Twain presents to this audience a covenant of hope in the unlikeliest of places with the unlikeliest of characters. For Twain's African-American audience, the novel necessitates, if not a complete celebration for and recovery of the slave of the South, at least an acknowledgement of the traits that defined and molded a people, a spirit and a vision of the next century's progeny. Resilience, tenacity, resourcefulness, and passion, passion for freedom, family, and ultimately a passion for the American ideal. So Jim has that in him. Twain put that in him, right? Mm -hmm. Where you could see a core of the African-American experience. Like he's resilient, he's resourceful, he's strong, he's compassionate, mm -hmm. he, he's uh, willing to go, you know, wherever he needs to go to get free, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you can, you know, kind of unpack Twain and unpack the historical context, you find these jewels of like wisdom for us even today. Mm -hmm. So the book really was was that process of unpacking Twain and understanding it. Toni Morrison was my spiritual guide throughout the whole process. Not only her article, This Amazing Troubling Book, but Beloved, which I also taught my first year and stopped because I was not good enough a teacher to teach it well. Yeah. It's a so hard I, one to teach. That's a hard book yeah. to teach well. Like, and I realized at the end of that, I was like, I, you know, I can't do this justice. I'm not prepared to do, to do this justice. But reading Twain at the start of the year and then Beloved right at the end of the first semester created this these poles mm -hmm. that kind of pulled me and, and opened up space for me to say, how am I going to deal with this book? I know there's value in it and what do I do? And that's when I started saying, I'm going to start just, I, I just started with a chapter. I'm just going to, I'm going to rewrite the first chapter from Jim's perspective. And then once I wrote it, I felt like, I want to keep writing this. <laughs> and, I, yeah, and I kept yeah. working on it. I assigned it, some chapters to students and said, read it and cut it apart, tear it up. You know what I mean? And got feedback from students. I shared, I talked to Justin Baker about it. I talked to Kelsey Carper about it, John Rowell, um, Patrick, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of people don't want to teach it, right? Like a lot of people at Gilman are like, I'm not even, I don't, I don't like the book. I'm not teaching it. And so I was curious about that and wanted to know why and how come I see all this in it and, and this really smart other person does not see it and, hmm. or, or sees it and just doesn't want the, the drama that comes along with it. Um, so those conversations helped to form it. And um, so, but the impulse was, you know, I could see the value of the book. And it's a controversial book that people don't, don't want to teach and kids don't want to read that, that is like, no, turn, look at it. I want, I want yeah. to say, look at it, face it. Yep. And the best way that started to form to do that, you know, outside of being a teacher, was to try to tell a story. And I wonder why that is, because you said when you came in, it was like the three books that you were given, Huck Finn was one of them. And, and when I was in high school, it was like a staple of the curriculum. You read Huck Finn. And now, like when when teachers have the choice of teaching it or not, there's there's reluctance to do it. Yeah. You dove right into it, but other teachers, yeah. there are reasons maybe why they they don't oh, want sure. to. It's it's maybe confronting these these difficult questions. It's 
they're not easy, especially yeah. with students and guiding some of those conversations in the classroom can be, you know, radioactive a yeah, little bit. Great word. Yeah. Radioactive. Yeah. Radioactive, which, we, you know, think about radioactive stuff, right? You don't, you don't just feel bad in the moment with radioactive stuff. You take it with you. It, like, comes with you in your DNA, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the damage it does is over the long term. And that's kind of like teaching Twain or Huck Finn specifically in a, um, like, in a way that's not informed can be radioactive. Mm-hmm. Everyone can walk out of that experience worse off including the teacher and the kids. And so teachers are like, teachers are like, I would rather not. I think there's other books to teach. There are other ways to do what we want to do. And I'm, I'm not saying everybody has to read Huck Finn. I just think if you get, remember, I'm, I'm reading all kinds of books. There's another one I didn't bring called Huck Finn's America. It's not about Huck Finn. It's not about Twain as much as it's about the context in which Twain is writing. So it's about America at that time. Fascinating book. Andrew Levy. Huck Finn's America. If you're going to teach Huck Finn, and I think there's a lot of value in teaching it, you got to do all this extra reading. Mm-hmm. You got to go to workshops and trainings. You got to try and find real ways to do it well. You can't just jump in there and do it. You got to prepare. But a real, you know, somebody like who's who's really a, a real curious teacher and who understands how important it is to wrestle with these issues will will do that. They'll do that. In my book, honestly, the book is designed for teachers. My market, I want teachers to get this book because I want to offer an alternative. Because I also don't know if you have to teach the entirety of the book. I think many critics... Because that's those, a common thing. Is yeah. like, I don't want to teach the whole yeah. Huck Finn. I want to teach parts of it. Yeah, he may, he loses his way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's a writer, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and he loses his way at different points. So there's whole chunks of the book that you could do without. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the section with the Duke and the Dauphin... It's just, you know, a long series of ridiculous adventures in which Jim is tortured, Huck is tortured, and it doesn't really add anything. It's just social commentary. It's, it's, it's Twain attacking, you know, politics and da-da-da-da, which is, you know, hey, it's, there's stuff, there's value in it, but you don't have to teach that stuff in my mind. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is teach excerpts of it and then teach excerpts of my book that are in conversation with it. That's cool. So then it opens up space to be like, whoa, you know, he, my choice was to use, so the N-word appears, i say 33 times in my book, and it's all in one monologue, right when my version of the Duke and Dolphin characters, they're called the Jack and the Joker, right when the Jack, the Joker, um, you know, decides he's gonna sell Jim back into slavery, and he gives him this long monologue, he's like, I, I don't really have a choice, this is what I gotta do, you know, there's no other way, this is the way of the world, you know, you're an N-word, and that's what we do with N-words, right? But that's that's the only place in the book where it appears. But there's one other segment right before where I tease the reader, like way earlier, I guess, where I have all these words that rhyme with the N-word. And so I have a whole kind of paragraph of rhyming with the N-word. And what I'm hoping to do is build tension in the reader, like, oh, we're about to go here, oh, here it comes, here it comes, but it doesn't. And then when you... If you look at the words I'm using to describe Jim in that moment, they're worse than the M word. Like mm-hmm. not not you know not in the, like American kind of lexicon, but what what's being said about Jim explains the M word. What's so bad about the M word, right? Mm-hmm. Without using it, I'm characterizing wow. like how bad it is. Mm-hmm. 
And there are choices like that a teacher could really use to help the students understand the N-word. And why, you know, it's not just a word. We don't need to just get over it. It, it actually carries power in it because it carries all these messages that end up in lynching, that end up in, you know, voter disenfranchisement, that end up in accusing somebody of not being from the country, that end up in, you know, like there's there's all this stuff there. So, yeah. Well, it's it's the most dehumanizing word, I think, in the English language. And I know before you begin teaching Huck Finn, that's what you discuss with your classes, that word. And we had conversations in the English department about that, too. Um, when you discuss that in a, over a course of an 80-minute period that first day, what kind of questions do you want your students to think about in terms of that word and how it appears 217 times, right, in, yeah. in Huck Finn? Yeah. That's another good question, man. Um, you're a teacher. <laughs> I can tell. Um, yeah, so what kind of questions do I want them to walk out of that first class with? Because you're not you're not telling them how it's going to go as a teacher. You're, no. you're asking them to decide what they think is right. Well, yeah. It's yes with a caveat, right? So it's like modified consensus. <laughs> so we can come to consensus, but I have the final say. Right. 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 But I do open up the discussion. And so if I were to answer your question, I want them to walk out of that room wanting to know why this word hurts people. Mm-hmm wanting to know the background of the word, wanting to know and make a decision about what's the right thing to do with the word. Mm-hmm. And so we, I have a, a whole process, and this is something I have talked to, to other teachers, where we, uh, Jay-Z has this song called The Story of OJ, and it's not only uses the N-word in the more colloquial, you know, black, you know, dialect way of using it, but also um, he's using it satirically and, and ironically. Um, and then the video is nothing but a menstrual, mm-hmm. a play on old cartoon menstrual stuff. And so we engage that video, we engage Toni Morrison's writing, we engage where she talks about you know, the N-word, and then we make a decision as to whether we're gonna utter the word, right? I'm, I, I hold my cards, saying that I'm not going to allow us to utter it. That's just the, the rule that I have in my room. But I, I, I say to them, let's decide as a class what we should do with it. And they wrestle with that. And then I say, well, then if we're not going to say it, what do we do when we come to it, when we're reading out loud? Are we just... Because it's gonna, in every paragraph. Yeah, almost, it's right? like, are we just going to pretend it's not there? Are we going to... And so what do we do then? Do we say slave? Do we say something else? And people give different suggestions, and we read about the ways different people have tried to handle that throughout history. And what we generally come to, because this is one of the example, the the options I give them, and it's it's I think it's probably the best option, and they they can probably sense that. So I know there might be a little bit of like, oh, you know, I, we better go with this because it seems like he likes this idea, right? There might be some of that going on, but it's to pause. So when you come to the word, you acknowledge its presence and you pause, and then keep reading. So we don't pretend like it's not there, but we don't utter it. We acknowledge the weight of the word with silence. Mm-hmm. And then we keep reading. So, you know, that's that's what we that's what, I, what we got to, you know, what I got to uh, about how to use it. And um, but that, you know, 
that's a great way to think of it. Like after that first class, for any of you out there wanting to teach Huck Finn, that's a question you need to ask yourself before you teach the book. That first class, before we even crack the book or before we really start, what questions do I want them to walk out of that class with? So that when we go into the book, they carry those questions into the book. That's a that's a good way to frame it, man. And, and um, I don't think I've thought of it that way, but I do I do think that's what I was up to without thinking of it, thinking of it that way. And, go, um, going into yeah. the book, but but I think the other question is when students come out of those what four weeks or five weeks of reading Huck Finn. What types of questions do you think you're setting up for them to think about as they go on with their life and go into the world and go yeah. to college, right? That, that's really what you're doing when yeah. you're teaching any type of literature. But, but Huck Finn, for you especially, you, you are tailoring your lessons and your teachings to complicate their thinking as they move forward. Absolutely complicated. I want them to walk out of their, you know, questioning the nature of freedom, you know, questioning the nature of race and its impact on their lives as well as American history. Um, and, and what they carry, I think, throughout the rest of, one of, one of the most important things that, that they need to walk out of this book with is understanding irony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> understanding irony, the power of it and how it works. And they don't fully get it, I don't think. I, but we, I usually end, this, end my years with The Handmaid's Tale. And so the, the, the voice offered in The Handmaid's Tale, the narrator, um, she's kind of sardonic and she has these biting reflections on, on life. And there's irony, there's, there's a little bit of um, misdirection in some of the things that she says, there's layers to it. And they can see it better because they read Huck Finn. Hmm. They can see it better. So even just on the plane of like learning literature, and being ushered to the doorstep of college writing. That's what we do in junior year, right? We're, yep. we're taking them from book reports to now analysis and having your own opinion and trying to defend it and trying to like make sense of a book, right? Not just say what happened. Mm-hmm. And we're ushering them to that. And then you polish them off a little bit as seniors. And then they should be college writers, right? So we, we play, a, this is an important year. Yeah, junior year for sure. Yeah, man, so. Yeah. And that's a next level skill, I think, recognizing satire in writing because it's it is so powerful. And Twain was, you know, the best, maybe the best ever at at satire. Um, just being able to recognize that in any literature, in any show that you're watching, it's it's everywhere. It forces you to get below the surface, mm-hmm. right? And and once you get below the surface, it gets really messy. But that's life. Mm-hmm. That's real life. Right. And that's why it's so powerful is it's like, it's not like Twain's overtly telling you anything. He's yeah. he's playing games underneath the underneath the surface. Yeah. And the value of it is when when you uncover something. Right. So if the author tells you racism is bad, you'll be like, yeah, or no, or kind of or, you know, what, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. But if the author puts a puzzle in front of you and then you piece it together and you go like, whoa, racism is bad. That's rooted in you because you made that discovery. Mm-hmm. And I think writers have to, you know, I've, as a writer, I've had to learn that and not be so direct and not be so upfront. But then the, the balance is you also can't be so esoteric that nobody knows what, what the heck you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You got to balance that. Twain was great at that. Middle ground. Yeah. So speaking of the way that Twain wrote in the form that he uh, constructed Huck Finn, why'd you choose 
the form that you did for Jim Huckleberry? And how did you kind of get into that type of writing or, or spoken word? How did you get into that um, yeah. as a really a craft? So I was in law, I started writing poetry in law school, um, like real poetry. Like I'd written stuff before, but I, I went to graduate school and I was around a lot of poets and I was too shy about getting out there. That was, it was New York, it was 1997. Um, New York Poetry Cafe, like it was, it was intimidating. Like, and I, I wasn't a polished writer, never really performed stuff. So I was an organizer of shows. I was one of these people. We had a group called Blackout Arts Collective, a, a, a tribe, a, a real, of, of real dedicated artists who also had a social justice perspective and wanted to change the world through the arts. And so we had Blackout Arts Collective in, in New York and it was rooted at NYU. And some people were performers and others of us were organizers. So we helped throw the event. So that's who I was. Then I go to law school and the the uh, one of my oldest friends, Breon Bain, was part of was one of the founders of Blackout Arts Collective. Happened to be at Yale at the same time because his wife was at Yale Medical School. And we were like, let's start Blackout New Haven. So we start Blackout New Haven. New Haven is not New York. <laughs> so, you know, shy, not shy, but like, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I don't have like, I'm not a big ego guy. Like, I, I can get out there and do that, do what he does. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm much more like, whoa, that's impressive. I don't know if I could do that, right? But in New Haven, it's a smaller world. It's close enough to New York where you can feel like you're doing something. So I jump out there and I start performing. This is my first spoken word piece. I'll, I'll give it to you now. Yeah. And it was just a little background. Breon Bain, the, the, the cat I was just talking to you about, he, myself, and some other artists uh, made something called Lyrics on Lockdown. And so we would, and when I was in law school, I would go do work in prisons, uh, like helping people get their GED. Or, and we were working on prison reform. So got some grant money and traveled around the country going to juvenile halls, doing spoken word poetry in the juvenile halls to inspire the young people to be like, hey, I know you've been through a lot. I know you're going through a lot. Writing is an outlet. Writing is a way to process. Writing is something that you can do well and feel good about yourself, right? And so trying to inspire young people who are locked up to write. So we traveled, we literally so traveled cool. from New Haven to Chicago to the West Coast and then back through the South, through New Orleans and Atlanta, back That's up. amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And so on that journey, it was, I had started writing this piece. And then by the time we got to Atlanta, which was the last leg, we went into this juvenile hall and I encountered a young man who was like 11 years old, which, you know, just think about an 11 year old. My son is 11 mm-hmm. and he's tiny. My little sister's 11, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine an 11-year-old locked up? But they have juvenile halls, at least in Atlanta, where there was, I don't know if it's still the case, but an 11-year-old child. And something in there, I'm seeing this kid, he's got big old eyes. And I'm like, what's, what is happening here? How do we have an 11-year-old child in here? Yeah. And so I left that, you know, when we left there, we went, we were driving around in a van. The next place we went, I, had, I sat in a van for a while and cried and then started writing. And it was about um, my cousin. So while I was in law school, my cousin was in prison. And he was my only male cousin, same age cousin. I grew up in New Orleans. He grew up in New York because his you know, dad had moved from New Orleans to New York. And so um, this is that piece. <clears throat> the monstrosity 
of turning bodies into commodities to boost the stock indices of private prison industries is an atrocity and makes a mockery of democracy. Now follow me. My cousin from Brooklyn, they took him. And now he's locked up in a federal prison serving a mandatory minimum 25 years for his third strike. The, sh the state sheds no tears when it takes a life. See, me and D, we used to do petty thefts for child's play, like any young ones making dumb young mistakes, but the mistakes came bigger where my cousin stayed. See, cuz knew gun running thugs who served cheese and slugs, these teenagers tasting blood with that gangster grudge, and they showed cuz love, or I guess that's what it was. They took him on a corner and made him part of their team. At 16, with short-sighted dreams, he took trips to whipped cream and on his way back from VA, bringing back guns for pay, Jersey Jakes gave chase and Cuz got caught for strike one. And now my young Cuz is marked for the hunt. See, I know it's folks like me in prison. They look like me and think like me. It's folks that have made mistakes and I sure can relate because it's folks just like me in prison and I was lucky. At 16, I had the choice to express my voice in talent shows, release my energy on the dance floor, playing football, running track. The future was my path. But my cousin spent every day paying for his past. By the time he got free from juvie, free at last, his high school years had passed. He took the GED and passed with one try, no studying. My cousin was so smart, a genius budding, nipped by the system, ripped, trying to get funds the quickest way he knew, had a daughter on the way, so he did what he thought a father's supposed to do. He hustled for loot and got popped for felony too, just like that. He wasn't about to plead not guilty because he knew he'd face the wrath of the judge and the prosecutor who get promotions for taking futures, so cuz caught the plea. Got out and still wasn't free. Now he's 23 getting in a minor altercation after a traffic violation, strike three. Now he's 23, facing 25. He's gonna be in jail longer than he's been alive. See, I know it's folks like me in prison. They look like me and they think like me. It's folks that have made mistakes and you know you can relate because it's folks just like us in prison. So that was, that's that was the amazing, piece. That's amazing. That's a true story. That's, you know, um, so that piece came out of a long period of like not being willing to get on stage and then having that an was experience. The first, first one. That was the first one I wrote and the first one I started performing. Unbelievable. And it came out of a heartbreaking experience seeing this 11-year-old boy in prison and thinking about my cousin mm -hmm. and all the years he had spent in prison. He's out now and he's gotten convictions overturned and, you know, he's good. He's, he's you know... Um, it's good to hear. Reconnecting with his daughter. And so um, the it has an ending, I, another ending. I, I sometimes try to tell people that so they don't walk away feeling completely demoralized because he's, you know, rebuilt his life. and mm -hmm. But that's what it took to get me to be willing to get up on stage, to feel like I had something to say that people needed to hear. And then I got over my fear once I had that. But that spoken word style of rhyming in different places and being rhythmic and you know using metaphor and using you know a lot of that was slang old school slang i don't know if anybody knows what cheese and cream and all that stuff means now but back then people would hear it and be like oh i know what he's talking about and so jake's i don't know i would i didn't mean jake scott yeah <laughs> but that's the slang for detective right so um it's so powerful though i mean that that form that you just delivered the, the 
and like your your expressions and your gestures, it all adds into it and makes it that much more than you just you know writing writing it down. It's that spoken word, it's man. That's, it's a powerful yeah. art. You know, it gets it gets made fun of a lot because people like to lampoon it. Like, you know, this flower comes and blooms every day, and it makes me feel some kind of way. Like, right? Uh, spoken word is part monology, like monologue, mm-hmm. part. You know, sometimes stand-up comedy, because a lot, when you're, the thing about slamming, and I didn't like slamming, but slamming would, because how do you give point totals to poetry? Like, how do you, you know? Yeah, it's too subjective. It's completely ridiculous. However, you have three minutes or you lose points, and here are the matrices of, the matrices of of things you have to do. You have to have good writing, you have to have good stage presence, and you have to say something that people want to hear and want to remember. And those three things are all sometimes competing with each other. And you have to strike that balance and do it in three minutes in front of people, knowing you're going to be judged by points. Mm-hmm. And there might be a cash prize for the winner. So right. all of those different pressures make diamonds. Yeah. And so that's where I cut my teeth. So I, when, I, when I left New Haven and graduated from Yale and went to uh, the Bay Area, that's, I started slamming. I started slamming in Oakland all the time, in Oakland and Berkeley. And I started winning. And that was the first piece... I would like start actually winning slams with because every time I deliver it, I'm just telling you a true story, right? I don't have to like switch my mind into something. I'm just like telling you what happened. Yeah. And I've done it so many times now. It's just in my brain. And I just a quick little aside, and then I'll, I want to share a couple of other things with you. Yeah. How much time do we have? Like, keep going, going, going. <laughs> I'm a talker, dude. You know that. No, I love it. I love it. It's great. We have all the time that you need here. It's all right. Well, I'm, I'm not gonna keep you all day. It is Saturday, so. A uh, little quick aside, Van Jones, who's famous on CNN now, you know, yep. kind of a lightning ride. Some people are always attacking him for different things. Um, Van is a mentor of mine, and I respect him deeply um, and appreciate him deeply. So I went to work for him at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights right out of Yale Law School. And my wife reminded me of this today. It's funny. The way I got that job was I had come out for a summer to work with them. And then when I graduated, went out to the Bay following my, my wife, who had gotten a fellowship to go work in the Bay. And I was like, I'll go out there. I'll find a job. I just want to be where you are. And I remember meeting, you know, seeing Van and um, us having a conversation. But I had forgotten this point. She said, you remember in that first conversation with Van, you guys were talking and then you did that poem. I did this poem in that conversation. Hmm. And then he, by the end of the conversation, he said, do you want to, do you have a job? And I was like, no. And he was like, how's 40000 sound? And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of money now because it's not. And, you know, especially coming out of Yale Law School, but I was just like, I don't have a job. And they're doing stuff that I think is really cool. And yeah. this guy is really cool. And so I took the job. Do you know Van, not only did he, he say, you have the power to be a world-class communicator. This is what you need to do to get better. You need to watch JFK speeches. You need to watch Martin Luther King speeches. You need to watch Malcolm X speeches. That cadence and rhythm. He was like a spoken word poet, like, hmm. like Martin Luther King, like Robert F. Kennedy. He would give me these assignments of people to watch. And then he would, he would put me out there. So there was this one time when we, we were trying to raise money for a campaign to you know, shift, it was called Books Not Bars, to shift resources from locking kids up and put it into education and alternatives to incarceration. And we were, we were in Silicon Valley, Los, Los Altos Hills, right? This is like 
billionaire territory. Mm-hmm. And we walk into this crazy house on the side of a mountain. It's a castle on the side of a mountain. And I'm sitting in a room with Omidyar, one of the one of the founders of eBay, and all these hundred, 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 hundred millionaires or billionaires. And he takes me with him. And he starts talking about the campaign. And then he says, you know, Mike, share share that piece. And I spit this piece in that room and people are crying. And he would do, he would like, he would recognize abilities and talents and he would feed it and then kind of send it out there and be like, yeah, you can do it, go do it, right? And in meaningful circumstances, not just like, you know. So I'm mentioning that because that moment and a lot of the times that I was allowed to use my creative arts in the midst of the the policy work we were doing was ultimately what led me back to led me to teaching hmm. because that was the part I enjoyed was the crafting of the writing and it was the working with the youth organizers to use their arts and use their talents to like deliver the message that we were trying to deliver with po- about policy and when I thought about it I was like that's the part I like the policy eh, the dealing with the you know going to Sacramento eh, the the media campaign and media actions, eh, but the kids. Yeah, inspire like the inspiring yeah. people. Yeah, and yeah. so that literally, I two years working with him at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, and then I taught two years of English, high school English at Balboa uh, High School in San Francisco. Oh wow! And that was that was the first time I was like, hmm, this feels so much better than anything else I do. This feels right. This feels like who I'm supposed to be. Right. But I couldn't immediately let the law thing go because it's like you gotta yell law yeah, dude right, you gotta right. do something with it you yep, know what I mean yep. so eventually though I get to Gilman and Gilman is what solidifies it for me Gilman how, is how'd that happen how'd you how'd you find out about Gilman and get here um yeah that's a great question so I mean there's a really specific answer but then there's a longer kind of meandering answer but um Mr. Finney um who um you know, has a big shadow footprint in this area. There's something called the Finney Group, which finds yep, talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, I mean, very, quite literally, they found me. And and I was looking. We moved to Baltimore, following my wife again. She she got a job at Garrison Forest, and we were living on the campus. We had moved from Atlanta. We decided together that we were going to go in this area. Um, and so she does diversity work, and she was doing that at Garrison. I'm living on that campus, and I'm like, again, without a job. Well, actually... Yeah, that's another story. We're going to leave that out of it. But um, So I'm looking for a job, come connected to the Finney Group. Finney Group is deeply rooted in Gilman world, and they brought me to Gilman. Um, and um, Bart, Bart Griffith, you yeah. know what I mean? If I had to lay it on one person, then it was Bart Griffith. Because even prior to them having an opening, a year prior to them having an opening, Bart probably took me to coffee three times that year. Just to say, hey, you know, when something opens up, we want you. Something opens up, we want you. Something opens up, something opens up. He was like, we want you, right? And so Bart brought me here. He brought you here, right? He brought me here. He's so, great. Bart, Bart is great, man. He's one of the guys I always admire, respect, and appreciate. Yep. And um, so that's quite literally it. But but the the other thing is like, you know, trying to figure out what am I here for, man? Like I, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a person who is I'm not. Money is not a driver for me. Fame and power are not a driver for me. It's like I want to find out what I'm meant to do. What did, you know, in my, my world, what did God make me for? What did my ancestors make me for? What did the universe make me for? Yeah. 
And I, you know, realized where are you, yeah. where are you most needed? You yeah. know, you're most needed inspiring people. That's what you do. I mean, even sitting here and delivering that and talking to you, it's like you probably leave the classroom or you pl- probably leave whatever room that you're in. And you're like, wow, I feel good because people are drawn to that. They're inspired by you. And, and teaching gives you that opportunity every day. Now, sometimes you leave out of there deflated. I know you know. Because yep, <laughs> yep, you, yep. you had this whole plan and you you were so excited and you thought it would work. And you went in there and it just falls flat. Yep. And it's just like, oh, man, I suck. Why am I not a better teacher, right? Then you have another day where you're like, this is what I was made for. Right, right. And those days when you walk out deflated, you're kind of like, I don't know, for me, it's like losing a game. It's like the next week, you're like, you're not going to lose the next week's game. You're not going to go to class tomorrow and have another deflated day. That's what it is if you're driven like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You go back to the drawing board. Right. You're like, what right, didn't work? This didn't work. That didn't work. You know, that fell flat. They like this. Can I expand it? You know, it's just working at it. So it's a process. It is. It is. And that's that's the writing process, too. Right. Like, and this is something we impart upon juniors as well. It's like the value of revising and editing. Like, you're not finished. <laughs> Keep at it. Like, look at it. You know, it's not just cleaning up mistakes. It's also... You might need to move a paragraph to another place. You might need to rethink your argument here. You might need to rethink your your whole perspective here. Like that's part of the process. So the entire structure yeah, is off. You yeah, know? you might have to just rewire the whole thing. But I want to share. Uh, this is what you because you asked like the style of the book, right? So this is the opening few lines of of um, Jim Huckleberry. So you heard that spoken word poem. A lot of lot of rhyming within the sentences. You know rhythm over time you know i've written a couple of books and you know, i'm giving these to you if i haven't already i might have I'm, I'm, I'm famous for like throwing my books on people but this is a book called the misbelief tree and it's about new orleans post katrina and going back home and dealing with my house that i grew up in which had been flooded with eight feet of water and so um this this book you know is a step forward from that spoken word um that spoken word piece. And um, so I'm going to read a little segment of this and then a little bit of Jim Huckleberry, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you have your Saturday, man. Um, <laughs> Perfect. You know, I don't think it's, it's a treat. It's a treat for. Well, this is, is a treat for me, man, because like this is the. I'm a, I'm a head of school, right? Like I spend all my time thinking about this school and its present and its future. This is my playtime. Right, like this is the stuff. It's your that wheelhouse, I do. right? Yeah, here. but you know, this is what rejuvenates me. You yeah. know what I mean? It makes yeah. me feel like, ah, okay, my mind is off of school for a little bit, and I'm doing something that feels, you know. So this is a blessing for me on a Saturday. So, but here's, um, in this story, I go to my house to watch it being torn down. True story, right? I had to watch my childhood home be torn down, and I, I'm leaving that situation deeply, um, just. I wasn't crying or anything. It was just like, a, wow, that just happened. Like, like I, I lived in that, I lived in that whole that home for most of my life as a child, and it's been in my life for twenty five years. Um, and I just watched it get torn down in twenty minutes, mm-hmm. torn into a pile of rubble in twenty minutes. What do I do with this? And so I'm back home in New Orleans, and I'm like, I'm gonna catch the bus, <laughs> and I decided to get on the bus and just ride it. And sit down and look at the city and just be present. Mm-hmm. And so this is me saying, um, describing the bus. Um, 
Have you seen her? She is a rolling porch from which we perch and witness the central business district to the city limits, ghost town to Bayou Sauvage. She rolls white with purple, green, and gold stripes like a shoebox Mardi Gras float. Ain't no better way to see the city unless the streets are flooded and you got a boat. And here she goes, coming grumbling, farting smoke. She hobbles and throttles to a stop with a choke. Her hands long and thin fold open with a hiss. Black rubber steps lead up to bliss, a heavenly cool. We may ascend as long as we drop in our doubloons. Rita has squares everywhere, boxes and frames that contain the depth of her perception and the reflection of reality therein. She's made of bolts, joints, and rivets, bent angles dented with divots, a wire draped her entire length, and infinite crevices in which to lose things. She hums like an old lady, mm, with her displeasure, and mm, with agreement in equal measure. She heaves as she sways and glides over bumps, rocking her riders side to side, teeter-tottering on their rumps. So what happens from the storytelling of the poem about my cousin, which still doesn't really have a name. I don't want to say his name. I, I usually would name it his name, but I, we had a conversation once, and he was like, I don't, don't put my name out there. And I was like, got it, dude. Mm -hmm. You know? But from that to um, this is that's a story in which I'm painting kind of big, broad stripes about a person's life in comparison to mine. Now um, I've got, you know, as you and as an artist, now I got the, the pen or something and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to describe in detail this one thing, mm -hmm. a bus. Right. Interesting choice of the, yeah. the bus. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, the, the whole theme of that book is like, Earth is a bus route. Like, we're all on the bus together. When If you if you ever caught the bus, and the reason the bus is important to me is I would, I'd caught, I started catching the bus in fourth grade in a different time, right? Yeah. Back in the 80s, you know, I, I can't imagine my fourth grade boy catching the bus in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. But I did that in New Orleans, right? So... But the bus is very special. Like everybody gets on the bus and we have we're trying to get somewhere, right? So if a conflict happens, people will generally try and figure out a way to calm that down. Because it's like, do not stop the bus. Right. It's like uh crossing Brooklyn Brooklyn Ferry, Walt Walt Whitman. It's the mm -hmm. same it's the same idea. We're all on this mm -hmm. we're all on this journey together. Yeah, and we gotta figure out a way to get along, man. Cause we cause if we can't stop the bus, we gotta keep it moving. Yeah, the bus doesn't stop. Right. Right. And so, the, you know, so but there's a step forward there. And so then Jim Huckleberry, um, the first lines are um, um, outside a window against a tree, a man named Jim leaned into heavy sleep. And though he was a powerful made man of great reach, he bore rags which made him look raggedy. So, and then I go into, let me read it because I, I, don't, I don't have this whole 300-something pages memorized yet. Um, okay. So this is chapter one. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just, just a little bit. Chapter one, how Jim became a slave. There is no such thing as a slave. There are only humans enslaved and the perpetual war waged to keep humans in such a state. Outside a window against a tree, a man named Jim leaned into heavy sleep. 
Though he was a powerful made man of great reach, his body bore baggy rags that made him look raggedy. Drool dripped through his beard and turned to mud as it mingled with the dust of day and the crusted muck of a meal of mush. Jim chortled with a snort as if he was having a snarky dream of some sort. Maybe it was a fantasy of some slick bit of slapstick calamity that he had caused to befall someone who'd done him evil in reality, like cutting out the bottom of the outhouse so the mistress's bottom would fall in her own trash with a nasty splash. Oh, shut up that yelling. You ain't dead. That's how you about to be smelling. <laughs> he mumbled and laughed in his head. So in that moment, we understand that Jim is a man. He's a powerful man who's covered in rags, right? And that's the whole, like you, to me, the message of the book is there. Jim mm -hmm. is a powerful man with, you know, skill and ideas and all this, and he's covered in the rags of a slave. Yeah, right. That slave is a clothing that he wears. All those qualities you were talking about with Mark, Mark Twain describing Jim in this way, but underneath you have resilience yeah. and you have... Uh, resourcefulness, everything mm -hmm. you were talking about earlier, it's mm -hmm. right there in those first yeah. few lines. Yeah, and he's a philosopher in this book. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He's courageous. Uh, you know, I'll give, a, you know, he's developing internal freedom throughout the process of the book. Process of the book. Mm -hmm. And that means at different points questioning things. That means at different points standing up for himself. And at the end, it means really deciding I am no longer going to be a slave. Hmm. I'll die rather. I'd rather die. And hmm. at the end, that's that's you know what he comes to. And in the end of the, you know it's a it's a twist on the ending, is in Huck Finn he finds out he he was free all along, right? Because that you know Miss Watson had died and set him free. So you know you could either see it as the whole journey was a waste of time, or as the whole journey was Jim becoming really free. Because you can move, remove the chains, but if internally you're still mm -hmm. captive. You know, so my book is also how he releases himself from captivity. And it's a series of choices. And the last choice is, kill me if you want. I don't care. We're going, like, let's scrap. Wow. I'm going to fight for my freedom. Wow. So it's an all, all an internal uh, journey yeah. for Jim in, in terms of his personal freedom and how he feels about himself. Yeah. That's amazing. And there's people that help him along the way, um, you know, folks that I made up because you know Twain doesn't have him in there like other enslaved people there's someone who's involved in the underground railroad who you know gives him some guidance and these three guys he meets who are um not you know who are named Cassius um Rich and Red so this is Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali Richard Pryor and Red Fox oh wow and I name him that because I want I just want to plant seeds that like these these amazing black figures who you know we can all admire what they do Th that genius existed during enslavement mm -hmm. and so Muhammad Ali a hundred years earlier would have been an enslaved man who was a brilliant poet and could whoop anybody's behind right but would he been able to be that in enslavement no but he became Muhammad Ali. Richard Pryor would have been this mad, Benjamin Qualls, mm -hmm. this beautiful storyteller who was hilarious and talented as an actor, but he would have been enslaved and limited in what he could accomplish. But then we had Richard Pryor. So 
you know, there's there's history in the book. There's I think it provides kind of breadcrumbs for folks who want to study African American history like that. There are notes in it that explain different parts of African American history. So I want my I want teachers to have this book, and that's what I've decided. I'm gotten to the point where I've stopped sending it out to agents and I've just started printing it myself and I'm going to use my own network to get it in the hands of teachers. If you're a teacher right now and you would like to teach Huckleberry Finn and you want this resource, this book, Jim Huckleberry, where can people find it? On Amazon, Amazon. is easiest. So okay. again, it's, it's a little lazy on my part um, because I just don't have, not lazy, I just don't have the time to be a you know yeah. bookseller right totally, now and totally. amazon makes it easy so easy yeah print on demand so just go on amazon look up jim huckleberry my full name michael otino molina otino spelled o-t-i-e-n-o michael otino molina mike molina might come up too um jim huckleberry and I, again like if you are thinking about teaching huck finn if you are teaching huck finn if you refuse to teach huck finn read this book mm-hmm. read this book and see if there's a way you can bring um, excerpts of Huck Finn back into your classroom because it's worth it. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for sharing your work. I mean, it's amazing. It's mind-blowing how you just off-the-cuff memorize and, and, you know, speak the words that you've written over the course of your career here. And um, it's been so fun talking to you today and getting you back on Gilman's campus. We miss you a lot here. Um, so thanks for coming in for the podcast. If there's anything else that, you know, we can, we can go for days. We can get another Saturday going for sure in the future, but I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. And it's always, I always feel like I'm getting smarter and more intellectually curious being around you. So, um, thank you very much. Well, I appreciate that, man. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I'm going to steal some of your questions, man. Those are some good questions I'm going to bring to my next workshop. Awesome. Appreciate it. And, and Cesare, I appreciate you for everything you're doing with the, the broadcasting here. I know it's a pain. It was uh, a little bit of a mess when we walked in earlier, but we figured it out. So thank you both for being here. It's been a lot of fun today. Peace. Thank you.